If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, the book of John. And we are in the 14th chapter of the book of John. We're starting there. If you don't have a Bible, you can take um, one of those pew Bibles that are in front of you, and it's page 901. I think um, maybe a somewhat familiar verse that if you're familiar with the book of John um, at all, there's a few verses and texts that you're probably aware of and know and have heard before. This is one of them. Um, It's, uh, uh, unfortunately, if you have heard it, it's probably you've heard it maybe in the context of a funeral of a loved one. And so it's from from that text of scripture. Um, It's a very comforting text. I think that's Jesus's purpose as we'll even see as we read it. But it's also in our culture, it's not a very politically correct text as, we'll, as we pull it apart. And maybe you'll pick that up in the very beginning. Here's what the big idea of today's message is. It's this, and I'll read it, give it to you before we read the text. So you can be kind of thinking about how we're going to get there. Is personal belief in Jesus and in his promises is the remedy for troubled hearts. It's a personal belief in Jesus and in his promises that is the remedy for troubled hearts. That's what we're having, that's what we see here is Jesus is inviting his disciples and also us, those of us who may have troubled hearts to believe in him and to trust his promises and to trust in the truths of the gospel. And it is this through this belief, through our belief in him, that untroubles our hearts. All right. John 14, starting in verse number one, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not you, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us. Um, we're probably a tired people, Lord. Our schedules are kind of off, Lord, by, the, by, by just the, the moving forward of time, Lord. And so I pray that we would, by your power and by your strength, not just by our flesh alone, that we can tune in, Lord, and that we can hear from your word, Father. Father, I pray that we would, um, as Scripture tells us to be, like we would be like the ant who stores up the food, who stores up food in the summertime, so that whenever the winter comes, there's food to eat. That there are some in the room, Lord, who are not in troubled times, and I pray for them, Lord, that they would store this this word up, so that whenever they reach troubled times, Lord, they could feed from it and it can feed their souls, Lord. And Lord, for those in the room who find themselves in a time of agitation of the soul, of unholy turmoil. Lord, I pray that you by your spirit, that you would apply these truths and these promises to our hearts. And Lord, as we sing so often, oh, for grace to trust you more, that would you by your grace enable us to trust in you more. In your name we pray. 
Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. So Jesus starts off with, let not your hearts be troubled. He's saying this to a group of 11 men in this upper room whose hearts are troubled and for for, for, um, good reasons their hearts are troubled. Jesus has just told them, and we see it in the text, that he's going away. Jesus, in the context of the Passover, Jesus has just taken unleavened bread and he's broken it apart and he's told them, this is my body that will be broken for you. He's picked up a goblet of juice or of, or of wine and said, this represents my, my blood. It's the blood of the new covenant and it's going to be spilled for you. I mean, that right there is enough for them to go like, time out what's going on, right? Like if we could kind of like uh, add a gift to this, uh, if you don't know what a gift is, then you're all the better for not knowing. But if we could add a gift to this, it would be the gift of Jim from the office who's going, what is going on? That's what's happening right here. The disciples are all going, what is going on in this room? What is Jesus talking about? On top of Jesus just saying these kind of mysterious words. Jesus talking about him leaving. We see with Philip, Philip's like, I don't even know where you're going. What you're talking about, Jesus? I have no idea. In the midst of that, Jesus has said, and one of you, one of my disciples, one of your friends is going to betray me. And they've watched Judas get up and leave the room. And then Jesus has followed that up by saying, and you, Simon Peter, who's probably their leader, they're all looking to Simon Peter, certainly is the most brash and most outspoken one in the group. I mean, They're looking to, and Simon Peter, you are going to deny me. And so they're confused. They don't know what's going on. And they find themselves in a place where their hearts are troubled by this. Their hearts are troubled. And Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Now look at that. That's personal activity. You disciples, you don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you have no reason to be troubled. Jesus doesn't say that we're never, our hearts are never going to be troubled. But what he does say here is have some personal activity and responsibility and don't let your hearts be troubled. The word troubled here means anxious or agitated. The picture is like um, when you trouble the water, when you break the water, when you create waves or for some of you may awake in your soul. John Piper says it's this, it's unholy turmoil that's happening in their souls. But Jesus says, don't let them, don't let your souls remain anxious and agitated. How do we do that, Jesus? Well, Jesus just doesn't command us, don't let your souls be troubled, but Jesus tells us, he gives us the way in which we can let our souls be untroubled. I know that's not a word, but I think it's a good picture. How we can calm our souls, and here's how he does it. It's through belief. Believe in God, believe also in me. That Jesus is in here, in this one line, Jesus is teaching us again that there is a correlation between our feelings and our emotions and what we believe, what we presently believe. That belief, Jesus says here, belief, faith. Belief is the the opposite of your feelings being troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Here's the remedy. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And the truth is, is that our hearts do get troubled, do they not? Our hearts do find themselves anxious and agitated. And you and I, we can feel that unholy turmoil that that Dr. Piper was talking about. That in this life, negative feelings and troubles, they're natural and they're normative. And 
Oftentimes that we, like the disciples, we don't understand what God is doing. We don't see the big picture. We don't know how things will work out. And what the Bible tells us over and over again is that feelings are an indicator of the soul. That what we feel is important. Like in your car, when you're driving your car and there's the indicator lights, there's the gauges going on and the, they're telling you the temperature of your car. And you know, like you get those indicator lights that sometimes come on and they go yellow and then from yellow they go red and then from red your motor starts making noise and you see, keep going and then it, it, it melts down and blows up and implodes and all of those things. In the same way, what's the indicator of the soul for us is feelings that we feel and we should be in tune to those. And sometimes negative feelings, like here we talk about negative feelings, like this agitation of the soul, it's an indicator of what you presently believe. Now listen, belief is popular today. Whenever I said that there was part of the sermon text that I said that it was not very politically correct, not very popular, it's not this part. Well, it is this part, but it's not the belief part. The belief is popular today. People all the time in our culture talk about belief. I mean, there's the Nike commercial right now that with, you know, uh, the Kaepernick fellow there, the football player, right? That's, you know, hot topic. And it's, at the end, it says, believe in something, even if it costs you everything. That our world is popular to think about belief, but that's not biblical faith. The biblical faith isn't just believe in something, even if it costs you everything, Although their belief in Jesus will cost them everything, our belief in Jesus will cost us much. But listen, biblical faith is not a holy hoping in what's best or holy hoping that everything works out. Biblical faith is not a, a, a hope in or a leap into nothingness. Biblical faith has an object. Jesus isn't just telling them to believe, but Jesus is calling them to believe on a specific object. And the object of our faith is more important than even the degree of our faith. The object of our faith is so much more important than the degree of our faith. That You can have a lot of faith and a lot of belief, but if it's in the wrong object, then it's absolutely useless. That biblical faith is focused faith. And it's faith that is focused on the faithful one who is Jesus himself. That what Jesus' remedy for a troubled heart is to believe in him, to bank on his promises, to trust in him. And Jesus in this text, he gives us three promises that, that he makes to calm an anxious heart. Now, this is one discourse. This is one sermon that Jesus is preaching from chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16. At the end of chapter 16, Jesus will go out and pray into chapter 17. He'll leave the upper room. So this is all one big long sermon. So I could really say, hey, there's about 25 things in here that Jesus gives to us to help calm our anxious hearts. But because we're only gonna look at these seven verses, within these seven verses, there are only three, three promises that Jesus make in order to calm our anxious hearts, to calm our troubled hearts. Number one, believe that the Father's house is spacious enough for you. Gosh, that's good news. Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place from you? Now, some popular or some translations like the King James Version, they, instead of saying, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, they say there are many mansions. 
And some of you, you like that picture of mansions, right? There's an old song, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop, right? There's a lot of different, like we could draw from old hymns and Southern gospel songs that sing about these mansions. And you go like, hey, a mansion isn't a room, so uh, which is it? Well, this is what Jesus actually says. There are many dwelling places. In my father's house, there are many um, dwelling places. So in Jesus's day, uh, patriarchal father. So you've got an important father, like the, the key father figure, he would have a house. And maybe you could think of that house as maybe like as a compound. And then what he would do is he would add on to that house or his sons would add on to that house to make room for their, um, for their extended family. And so then you would have, like if you were a wife of one, then you would come and you would move in and you would move in with the uh, in-laws. Now, I was just told this joke two weeks ago, so I got to share it with you. You know, you know what the difference between in-laws and outlaws are? Outlaws are wanted. Bada ba bam. That's good, right? That's good. That's good. That's good. And, but could you imagine? That's the picture. Is the picture is is that a son would add on to the father's house and would create an, another living space, another room. And listen. There's thousands of jokes, right, that we could tell about like mansions and all of that. And, you know, we could go on and on and on that many of us has heard this. But listen, Jesus' focus isn't on aesthetics. It's not on size. Jesus isn't saying to a poor people that, hey, you didn't have a mansion here. You had a mud hut, but guess what? There's coming a day, you're going to have a mansion and it's going to be gold. And That's not Jesus' focus. Jesus isn't focusing on any of those things. What Jesus is focusing on, if you could, I believe Jesus is focusing by using this terminology, he's focusing on three things. He's focusing on the reality of heaven. He's focusing on the inclusivity of heaven. And he's focusing on the permanence of heaven. The reality of heaven. Hey, heaven's a real place. I know none of you have been there, but it's a real place. That heaven's not just some make-believe place that Christians who were afraid of death have concocted up, right? The afterlife isn't just something we tell each other because, well, you may die and your loved ones may die. So let's talk about an afterlife in heaven and how beautiful and how wonderful it may be. No, no, no. It's not to give us a false sense of hope for an afterlife. Here's the deal. Heaven is not the foundation of Christianity. In some religions, the afterlife would be the foundation, but heaven is not the foundation of our faith. The foundation of our faith is Jesus, God. He's the foundation. And Jesus, we believe in heaven because Jesus believed in heaven. We believe in heaven because Jesus taught us about heaven. We believe in heaven because Jesus said he was in heaven with the Father and has come down to this earth and he's gonna go back to the Father, that we believe in heaven because, and we believe that heaven is real because Jesus is real, because Jesus's claims are real, because Jesus's own life, death, and resurrection are real. Therefore, we believe in it. Have you ever heard the statement of, um, this person's so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Like sometimes you could say that about the legalist or the, the super religious person or the person with all the bumper stickers everywhere and all of those things. You know, that guy, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good, but that person doesn't exist. There is no person on this earth that is so heavenly minded that he is of no earthly good. That, is, that can't fit together. In fact, we're called in scriptures to be heavenly minded. 
that heavenly mindedness is what makes us truly sacrificial and generous and willing to lay down our lives, literally everything. Heavenly mindedness is what enables us to suffer well. In fact, Paul says this in Colossians, the third chapter, the first and the second verses. He says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. He's pointing to heaven, seek those things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on this earth. The New Living Translation, I love how it puts it. It puts it like this. Since you have been raised to life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Man, isn't that good? Where Christ sits in a place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of this earth. C.S. Lewis wrote in his uh, Mere Christianity book, um, it's on the list of every book that a Christian should read. And we could go over that list again, but if you haven't read it, it's a pretty thin book and pretty easy to read. C.S. Lewis is the same guy that wrote the screw tape letters that is also on the must read list for Christians, but uh, that's my list, that's my opinion. But it's a great book. He's also the guy that wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia. It's the same guy, C.S. Lewis. Mere Christianity is a wonderful book. And in Mere Christianity, Lewis writes this, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Christians, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Christians are called to be heavenly minded. A Puritan preacher named Richard Baxter, and he wrote a great book called uh, The Reformed Pastor. And uh, he's a Puritan writer, and he was, uh, suffered a lot of ailments, a lot of sickness, was in a really tough part preaching and teaching. And they ask him, they're like, Richard Baxter, what's one of the keys to your longevity in the ministry? What keeps you from giving up and to giving up on Christ? And he said this, I think about heaven for 30 minutes every day. I think about the realities. I do as Paul was telling me to. I let the realities of heaven enter into my mind. And as I do that, it enables me. It gives me endurance to continue. Now, what's heaven gonna be like? Man, I don't know. I haven't been there, (laughs) right? Nobody's been there except one Jesus who came and left again. It's probably not like the books, you know, that they write about like, telling you all about heaven. It's probably not like that since, again, Jesus says no one has been to heaven and returned to earth except for one, myself. So, you know, they may have had a vision or a dream of something, but probably haven't been to heaven. Now, we can take some of those passages of scripture and put them together and we can know some things about heaven. It's going to be majestic and it's going to be beautiful and it's going to be all these things. I know this, the best that you can think about here on this earth. What's the best? Like, we're... 
working. You know how you feel you, you work and you get all sweaty and nasty and dirty outside and you get inside that shower and then a great feeling and let all that shower just wash over you and get out and you feel re- refreshed and renewed. A glorified body will feel better than that. What's the best emotion you can think of and you can feel? Well, I, I think the best emotion that we can feel as human beings is probably the, you're gonna think love, but I, I, I would say even, Yes, love is true. We'll talk about that in a second, but maybe even the sense of relief, right? Have you ever been in pain and someone say, hey, you know what? It'll feel better when it's over. Like we're in, because of sin in the fall, like we're in pain and it's gonna feel better when it's over. Guess when it will be over? When we see Jesus. When we get new glorified bodies. When we see Jesus just as he is. We're in a faith. We're in in hope. As Paul talks about in the Romans 8th chapter, Hope isn't something we've seen because then it wouldn't be hope. And right now, what you and I, we hope, even though in this world, there's groanings and travail and problems, but our hope is in a different place. What's the best emotion that we can feel? Love? Love? I get so excited for new moms and dads in the room because you think you know what love feels like, but you don't, right? Until you look into that, little incubator and you see that little child you go oh my gosh I remember looking at Kennedy Grace and just saying what do you want little girl I'll go get it for you right now right car (laughs) what is it ice cream like gosh and even knowing that that as scripture tells me man I'm I'm a I'm a fallen and messed up daddy and we'll experience a love like we've never experienced in heaven what is heaven like I don't know but even heaven's even this earth's best will pale in comparison to be like heaven. We're longing for that. The reality of heaven, let heaven fill your mind. We'll get to the best part of heaven in a minute. Number two, the inclusivity. Look at what Jesus says. In my father's house, there are how many rooms? How many rooms? There are many rooms, many rooms. Jesus is saying that my father's house is spacious and I will never run out of room. That's good news. That Jesus will make a very exclusive claim in just a few minutes in this text. He will say that no one enters into heaven except through me, except through for personal faith in me. You will not see heaven. You will not be reunited with the father. You will not enter into the father's house. It's a very exclusive claim, but Jesus is giving also a very inclusive invitation who can come, anyone who is willing, anyone who desires, anyone who wants to, that there is room for you. Again, Jesus is saying this to 11 disciples who did not get it all right. Jesus is saying this with Simon Peter standing there. Simon Peter, you're gonna deny me three times in just a few hours, and yet you can be included into my father's house. Philip, you're as confused as you can be. Some of you feel that way. You're as confused as you can be, but Jesus is making this promise. There is room for you in my Father's house and possibly you. You could be here today and you could say, Pastor, you have no idea what my past looks like. You don't know how hard, how sordid, how sinful, how wrong, how messed up, how... And you're right, I don't. But Jesus does. And Jesus has cried out time and time again. Jesus stood and looked at Jerusalem and said this about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, 
Just a few hours ago, probably, Jesus stood at Jerusalem, looked at the city of Jerusalem, said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come. Don't, don't, let, don't let that be you. Don't let the enemy lie to you and deceive you into believing that God's grace is not big enough to cover your past, your sin. Believe me, it is. You know how I know? Because he's covered mine. He's covered my past and my past. But you don't know, Jesus knows. And you can come. You, he says to Jerusalem, you would not come. You can come. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there is still room for you. I think about my grandfather, who was a Baptist minister, and after every, right, after every baptism, he would always say this, though many have come, there is still room for one more. And then they would go into an old song, and the song was, there is still, there is room at the cross for you. And that's what Jesus is saying. There's room in my father's house. There's many rooms. I'm not going to run out of space beckoning and inviting to come. Not only is heaven a reality, the Father's house is a reality. Not only is it inclusive and he's inviting you to come, but look, it's permanent. The Father's house is not a hotel. Right? It's not a hotel. You don't get kicked out. You don't have to get up in the morning and pack your stuff out. It's the Father's house that heaven is going to be, what's heaven going to be like? It's going to be like, it's, it's going to be like going home. And it may feel like a little, uh, I don't know, but it's going to feel like home to us. It's not going to feel like we're going to a foreign country where you don't know the language or the geography or the customs. It's going to feel familiar and comfortable place where we'll be welcomed by a father who loves us. And this, that will be our eternal home. This is temporary. That is permanent. And that is such good news for us. My family, we're coming up on a, the two-year anniversary. It's hard to believe. We're coming up on the two-year anniversary of when we brought our little girl home from Haiti. So for those of you um, that don't know, my family, and uh, we adopted a little girl from Haiti. She was two when we brought her home. And so she had never, of course, never been to America. We had shown her a few pictures of our home and of our dog and nanny and granny. And we went and got her. And the way that we went and got her, I, it's the, all, all countries do adoptions very differently. And so sometimes you get to spend a ton of time on the back end with your child and then you bring your child home. Um, Haiti does it the most backward way that they could think of doing it. And it's like this, you spend, two, you spend two weeks with your child on the front end, then you come home for a year and then you go back and you get your child. So Luann and I, I wanna say it was a Thursday. We flew out on a Thursday morning. We flew to Haiti. We spent the night at the orphanage director's home. We got up early on Friday morning. We went to the orphanage. We got our little girl. And on Friday afternoon, we left, went home, spent the night in Haiti one more, got up the next morning, right? On a Saturday, flew home. And on Saturday night, we brought her into her room. She's a little over two years old. And it was just like something clicked in this little girl's brain when she walked in the door. She just got all excited. She wasn't scared. She was just like, oh. and the, the Creole word for look is gade. She kept saying, gade, gade, gade. She got down on the floor. She went, we put her in her room and she was like, she understood. Gade, gade. She gets bears and baby dolls and all of the stuff, even though she had never set foot. And I know not every adoption story is like that. Believe that, I understand that. She never set foot in that house, but yet she understood that that was her home. And that's the way heaven will be for us. 
We've never seen it. We've never stepped foot in the Father's house. But when we get there, we will know that we are home. Isn't that good news? Gosh, come Lord Jesus. Now you see through the centuries, see when you start thinking about heaven, you see why through the centuries, the disciples would say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come, come. Like this isn't our home. This earth fits like a cheap suit. We don't make, we can't make sense of what people are doing on the left or the right, right? What are you all thinking and what are you doing that nothing feels natural here and it should not feel natural here because this isn't our home. It's a good place. It's a good place to live for 70 or 80 years, you know, especially here in the United States of America. It's a good place to live, right? But it's not our home. This is the hotel. There's coming a day when we get to check out. We'll check into our eternal, permanent place and residence. All right, number two, that was um, number one, believe, that's what we have to believe. Believe that there's room for you. There's permanent space for you. Number two, believe that Jesus is preparing heaven for you and he's preparing you for heaven. That's good. He's believed that Jesus is preparing heaven for you and you for heaven. Verse number two, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This does not mean that Jesus is in heaven with a magical hammer and golden two by fours building a home for you. That Jesus has prepared a place for us. In fact, look at that text. I underlined the number of times in those two verses that Jesus says, you. I told you, you. Who am I, who's he preparing it for? I'm preparing it for you. A place for you. I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And I know that those, that he's speaking that specifically to those 11 disciples. But they're the first fruits of the church. He's speaking that as he speaks it to those first century believers, the first believers, and he's speaking it to us as well, to you, to you, to you, that Jesus has prepared a place for his true children to reside in and to live in. And how has he done it? Well, he's done it by being true to his claim. Look with me, if you will, in verse six. This will help you some as you try to think about how much longer is this joker gonna go. I'm gonna speed up a little bit. Verse number six, Jesus says, he makes this claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is number six of seven I am statements that Jesus makes. Jesus has already made five of them that we've looked at as we walk through the gospel of John. And this is the sixth one. I am, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What we said is each one of Jesus's I am statements is first, it is a claim to deity. Then when Jesus says, I am, he's not just using this to point to himself, but the I am refers back to God's personal name. It's the name given to Moses that, or God gave Moses all the way back in the burning bush. He's saying, I am, I am God is first and foremost what he's saying. I am deity, I am God, I am he, I am the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So first, it is a claim to his deity, but second, it also teaches us something about the nature of the salvation that Jesus offers. 
It tells us something about Christ, the nature of Christ's salvation. And here what Jesus is saying is, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. That's what Jesus is teaching us. He goes on to say in that, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now again, this is a time where you don't need me. Like you can understand what Jesus is getting at. What is Jesus saying here? Well, I think what Jesus is saying here is Jesus is saying that he is the way to heaven. He is the truth that speaks to us about heaven. He is the life that will, through his life, you and I will enter into eternal life. A missionary uh, wanted to go and to visit, uh, uh, a missionary in Central um, America wanted to go and visit this distant remote a village tribe that was down into the, the, the jungles in the middle of a dense jungle. So he hires a, a guide to take him there. He asked the guide, do you, know how, do you know how to get there? And the guide says, yes, he insists. And so the missionary follows the guide to the edge of the jungle. The missionary asks the guide, he says, where's the road? And the guide turns and says, I am the road. And for the next six hours, the guide hacks his way through the dense jungle in order to deliver the missionary to the group of people that he wanted to meet. Jesus is the road. He is more than just a religious guide, but he is the divine son of God who has come to make the way to the father and to the father's house. That Jesus has hacked his way there. That in, as you read the Old Testament, and as you see what occurs inside the temple on the day of atonement. So this is the one day of year where the high priest would make an atonement, forgiveness, ask God to forgive the sins of the people. And it was a horrible, horrific, bloody affair. And the high priest, they sacrifice maybe hundreds of animals out front. And then the, the, the high priest, when the time would come for him to enter into the temple and then into the temple gates and the courts and into the very holy of holies, the high priest would go in there with a hyssop, dipping it in blood, and he would literally be slinging blood all over the place, making a way by the shed blood of a sacrificial animal, shed blood, for the forgiveness, to, to lay a hold of the presence of God on behalf of the people so that they can have forgiveness of their sins. Jesus dying on the cross as our sacrificial lamb is an incredibly bloody affair. The book of Hebrews picks up this very same picture and says that whenever he entered in though, he didn't enter in to offer up uh, sacrifices and blood for his own sins because he was sinless. He offered up himself for us. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Everything that Jesus has told us is reliable and it is true. And Jesus is the life. That Jesus is the one who will defeat death and offer life to everyone who will believe in him. In our pluralistic age, in our increasingly anti-Christian age, I can think of very few verses that are any more offensive to that world and to that mindset, to those people than this verse. It is offensive to a pluralistic age. But know this, that Jesus in this isn't claiming anything new. This isn't something, oh, where did that come from? This is something that Jesus has been saying all throughout the book of John. What Jesus has been stating over and over is no one can have God as their father apart from having him, Jesus, as their savior. And he's saying the same thing here. You don't get to the Father except through me. It's pretty obvious that he says this. 
And also know this, that this is not our claim. This is not the claim of the church. This is the claim of Jesus. This is Jesus who's saying this. The same Jesus who claimed to be the bread of life and the good shepherd and the resurrection and the life. He is claiming that he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And his death and his resurrection, they validate all of his claims. Hey, believer. Believer trying to live in a pluralistic age, in a pluralistic world, don't be embarrassed by Jesus's words. Be thankful for them. You know, we should never be shocked that Jesus says there's only one way to heaven and he's that way. We shouldn't be shocked by that. We shouldn't be shocked that there's only one way to heaven. What we should be shocked in is who is that way? Like when you really truly understand the depth of your sinfulness, that God, even in his grace, would give us one way. Grace upon grace. And then what is that way that he would send his son? He would come and live as a human being, that he would suffer and he would die? In our place, Jesus would stand condemned, right? We think about that song, condemned. In our place, he stood. That he would die a death that we, you and I all deserved and then rise again. Man can't concoct that. This is what God is doing. So we should never be ashamed or embarrassed that there's only one way. We should be, or shocked even in that, but we should be grateful for it. Jesus is currently, right now, Jesus is preparing a place for us. That through his present ministry of intercession for us, by being our advocate and by keeping us for the day when we will see him face to face, Jesus is preparing a place for us. And he is also preparing us for a place. That's what sanctification is all about. It is our preparation for heaven. It's not the means by which God qualifies us from heaven. We're qualified by faith alone, but he's preparing us for heaven. That all of our present struggles and all of our frustrations and all of our trials and all of our sufferings and all of our learning, all of our sanctification, they are reminders. They're teaching us. They're reminders that this is not heaven. And they should make us long to be in heaven. Most of us probably live in 40601, our zip code. Hey, that's the zip code for Frankfort, Kentucky, not the zip code for heaven. And like, get that in your minds. I mean, just a few years ago, I stood and talked to another, another pastor. We stood at a casket of a young lady. And this pastor said to me, I don't understand how this happened. Like, you don't understand how this happened? That when God said in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, when God says, you disobey me and you will die. And the serpent says, you will not surely die. No, God meant it. That when Adam and Eve disobeyed and rebelled from God, death entered in. That the consequences, the wages of sin is what? It's death. And physical death really just points to spiritual death, the truth that we are separated from God. And so not only is Jesus in this saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way to heaven. Not only is he telling us, hey, eternal life, but he's the way to the Father. Like that's where we're, who's in the Father's house? Who lives there? Whose house? It's God the Father. And he's reconciling us, not just to heaven, but he's reconciling us back into God. He's not just undoing death by giving us eternal life, but he's also undoing the full effect of the curse 
that forever separated God from his children. And he's restoring that back in that we may have fellowship with him. All right. The last one. Believe that where, that where Jesus is, that is where you want to be. What's so special about heaven? It's not mansions. It's not streets of gold. It's not gates of pearl. It's not even the fact that we'll no longer have aches and pains. Somebody said, what is it you remember from your 20s? I said, my back not hurting. That's one thing I remember from my 20s, right? It's not even that we lay that down. It's not even that we see loved ones. What's so special about heaven? One word, one name, one person, Jesus. That's what's so special about heaven. Look at what Jesus is saying there. He's saying that I will take you. I will come and I will take you. Verse number three, and if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. That heaven is heaven because that is where Jesus is. You know, when I was, uh, think about the, the songs that may enter in when you think about heaven, tons of them be written. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, what's the rest of it, right? I don't want to go, right? Think about some other songs. I mean, it's even like, none of them nail down what heaven is about. <laughs> Certainly that one, right? None of them, leave it to Hank Williams Jr. How did he miss that that he didn't know? But listen, none of them nail down what heaven's about. In fact, as I've, as I've been going through this, uh, whenever I was a new believer, and especially when I was a youth pastor, the song came out in 1993, there was a song by a group with Kentucky Roots, Audio Adrenaline. They wrote a song called uh, Big House, right? Those of you that were parts of youth ministry, uh, you probably remember that, that song, Big House, right? It's my father's house, right? Like, let me read to you the, I'm not gonna sing it because I can't sing, but let me read for you the lyrics of it. He says, I don't know where you, where you lay your head or where you call your home. I don't know where you eat your meals or where you talk on the phone. I don't know if you got a cook, a butler, or a maid. I don't know if you got a yard with a hammock in the shade. I don't know if you got some shelter, say a place to hide. I don't know if you live with friends in whom you can confide. I don't know if you got a family, say a mom or a dad. I don't know if you feel love at all, but I bet you wish you had. Come and go with me to my father's house. Come and go with me to my father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room a big, big table with lots and lots of food, a big, big yard where we can play football, a big, big house. It's my father's house. Now I'm gonna ask you to raise your hands if you'd never heard that song again, but just know this, you're, you're blessed, right? That you hadn't and now you have. And even as great as that song is, what's missing in that song? Jesus. Jesus is. So mention of Jesus what makes heaven so beautiful? What makes heaven so wonderful? What makes heaven so grand? One name, one person, Jesus. Jesus is coming. Jesus is taking his disciples. He's taking his people. He's taking the father's children to himself that where he is, we may be also. Close with this. C.H. Spurgeon said, the central hope and the glory of heaven is to be with Christ. He says, there will be little else we shall want of heaven besides Jesus Christ. He will be our bread, our food, our beauty, and our glorious dress. The atmosphere of heaven will be Christ. Everything in heaven will be Christ-like. Yes, 
Christ is the heaven of his people. Let's pray. Jesus, you will end this, this night, this evening, before going across the valley and praying. You will end it by telling the disciples again, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus, may we have faith to trust you that you have overcome the world. May we take heart in times of darkness and tribulation, knowing that you have overcome the world. As we come and as we remember, Lord, that all of your claims and all of your, tr- all of your claims, all of your teachings, they are true. Because you are the one who has died and rose again from the dead. Lord, as we remember that here by the taking of the Lord's Supper, may we remember your great love for us and your great grace for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.